Today's episode is brought to you by public.com, an investing platform which you'll be hearing more about later on in the show. But for now, let's get into today's interview. It's Monday, March 13th, trading just closed in US markets. And I am joined by Joseph Wang and Stephen Moran. Joseph used to work at the Federal Reserve. Steve used to work at the US Treasury. That's two out of the three institutions that made uh, emergency measures yesterday. So I'm so glad that we have both of you here. Joseph, Steve, great to have you. Welcome. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for having me. Joseph, viewers of uh, our interview with Jason Yanowitz will be familiar with your views. So let's start with uh, Steve. What did you make of the, I'm not going to use the word bailout, but what did you make of the relief package that came out yesterday? Oh, I think I think this was absolutely a bailout, and I think it's absolutely proper to use that term. Um, look, I, I think that you know, like on Friday, uh, this thing happened so incredibly quickly. Um, it it came up on on for sure me, and I think the entirety, almost the entirety of the market, with 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 shocking speed. And I think that's part of the you know this new digital age uh, where people communicate and coordinate on on getting their money out of a bank much faster than they used to uh, it was shockingly fast on friday the scope of the problem was very unclear uh, over the weekend you heard more and more people everyone i talked to with you know sort of a small business account at a regional bank said yeah i'm pulling my money first thing on 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 monday morning and it became increasingly clear that uh deposits were going to flow out of those regional banks um and so as the hours ticked by on the weekend through friday night through saturday uh nothing significant from the from the authorities i think you know i was growing increasingly concerned and then on sunday morning they send out secretary ellen onto the morning shows and I thought, okay, she's not going to go onto the morning shows empty-handed, and that's exactly what she did. And I thought, <laughs> oh, this is a disaster. Uh, you know, they sent her out with nothing. It's going to be, it's going to be, it's going to be murder on Monday. Um, and fortunately, you know, they did get something out by uh, by 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 Sunday evening. Uh, you know, they announced a, a, a pretty pretty. Um, pretty fulsome set of packages to try and prevent further bank failures. There's still some risk of bank failures. We could talk about in a bit if you want. Um, but, uh, you know, it, fortunately, they came out with something before the Asia Open, before before futures really got started on on, on last night. Um, and I thought it was ultimately going to be much worse than it much worse than it was um, in terms of how long, you know, sort of how long they would take to, to get something out. Um, they did get something out that guarantees uh, that guarantees banks liquidity as long as they have government backed paper to pledge as collateral to this new facility that we can get into the details of if you want. So what they did do was was really lower the lower the risk that folks conceive of these regional banks as insolvent as long as they have government paper, regardless of the interest rate the interest risk that they, they stupidly took on that paper. Um, but I think, you know, and so it, it absolutely was a bailout. Um, you know, it was a bailout of the VC community. It was a bailout of the depositors who should have taken more, who, who should have, you know, should have done, I think, a lot more due diligence and 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 responsibly manage their treasury accounts. Um, and so we did, you know, there's there's a cost and there's a benefit. The benefit is we've 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 cut off the left tail of uh, huge runs on a large number of regional banks, not all of them, as I'm sure we'll get into when we talk about CRE risk, right? But of a large number of them. Um, but on the flip side, you know, there's lots of moral hazard and lots of irresponsible activity was bailed out. And I think that there probably were better solutions that were somewhere in between uh, that we, that, you know, and theoretically we could have gone down that road instead. Joseph, is this moral hazard? Was this a bailout? 
100% bailout and an unprecedented bailout, really. So there's two things happening here. So what one is what happened with the uh, Silicon Valley bank deposits, depositors, and the other is the facility. So I'll touch on a little bit of both. So listen, we never want uh, you know mom and pop to lose your money when they put money in a bank. So the way that the government does this is that they give everyone a $250,000 FDIC insured account. So they protect basically the average person. Silicon Valley Bank was very uncommon in that almost all of its deposits were uninsured. So it wasn't a bank for mom and pop. It was a bank for rich people and for companies, people who should have known better how to manage your money. Now, I used to work in the money markets and I can tell you that anyone who is just mildly competent in managing corporate money knows that banks can fail. And so you wanna put some in money market accounts, you wanna buy some bills and so forth. So all these guys uh, basically, you know, just bet, bet it all on Silicon Valley Bank. That was their choice. And the government uh, basically bent the rules to protect them. Now, I'm pretty certain that if we had a small bank somewhere in Oklahoma fail, you know, I'm sure the government would not be making those depositors whole uh, if they were uninsured. And to be perfectly clear, over the past 20 years, we had 500 banks fail. Banks fail all the time. Not uh, as large as Silicon Valley Bank, but they, they fail all the time. So we had a process in place, but we basically bent the rules to protect, uh, I guess, people who are who are really didn't really need protecting. Now the bail, the facility that we're talking about now, is um, an emergency lending facility that the Fed has, and what the facility does is something that a central bank has, to my knowledge, never done before because it's completely crazy. So as if you're a central banker, you understand. Basically, uh, basic dictum of central banking. You need to lend to banks that are solvent. You want to lend against good collateral, and you want to lend at rates that are punitive. What you're doing is you're you want to be a backstop to the banking sector. Bank has you know has some liquidity problems, not solvency, but some liquidity problems. You want to go and you want to help them. You don't want to have panic. Okay, that's what a central bank has traditionally done. This new facility though lends to banks even if they are insolvent. Now this is you know, what it is, is it has no solvency requirements. So, you know, they're going to lend whoever shows up. Okay. Two, and this is really, really interesting is that they're willing to lend essentially unsecured. So if you have, if you bought, okay. So if you bought hundred dollars in us treasuries, now it's trading at $70 because the fed hiked rates, you can take that $70, pledge it at the facility and borrow a hundred dollars. So, in effect, the Fed would be lending thirty dollars unsecured to you. It never does that. You're lending. You're you're basically um, lending against poor collateral, so to speak, and you're lending at a rate that's uh, around the market. And I, I suspect it's slightly below market. Depend if you're a bank and you need help, your borrowing rates are going to go way higher. So, what the Fed is offering is basically to bail out in all the entire banking industry, and that's unfortunate because over the past ten years. We've done so much, so much to improve the banking sector, so much regulation, so much uh, Fed has put a lot of liquidity in the banking sector that we, you know, we, we could have shown the world that the banking sector was stronger. But now we've shown that we really don't need bank reps. We just need the Fed to fire up the printer. Joseph, you and I spoke uh, earlier at 1030 a.m. today, Eastern time, which was peak panic in the markets for regional bank stocks. And uh, whether we want to talk about Western Alliance, Bank Corporation, uh, First Republic, all of them crashed, you know, 30%, 50%. 
and they uh, and, and that's on top of uh, what they did on Friday. Um, and you were very calm and collected and confident and said, actually, I don't think there's going to be a whole lot of problems at all. And since we rec- started recording at 1030, I'm just looking at Western Alliance Bank Corporation. That stock is up 240% in one day. And all the other banks are also up a ton. Nowhere, nowhere close to that. Uh-huh. Uh, what gave you such confidence that the banks would be okay? And would you still have that confidence if there hadn't been the backstop of, of yesterday? And after you, Joseph, I want you to share your view on, on your outlook on the bank, Steve. Sure. Um, I, the honest truth is the banking facility doesn't actually help those banks at all. <laughs> so the bank, to, in order to borrow from the banking facility, you need to have a lot of securities. You need to have treasuries and agency MBS. If you are a regional bank and your name is not Silicon Valley Bank, you don't actually hold much of those things. They This doesn't really help the medium banks. This really helps the big banks tremendously because they have huge, huge uh, securities portfolios. It would have helped Silicon Valley Bank as well in that it was unique with a large securities portfolio that had unrealized losses. But it actually won't help these smaller regional banks. I, I, I think this was overblown because I don't think there's a systemic risk. And honestly, these other banks, from my analysis, much, much better run than Silicon Valley Bank. I, I don't think there was any real concern that they would go under. And to top it all off, you know, the, the authorities bent the rules for Silicon Valley Bank. It's only quote unquote fair that they would bend it for everyone else as well. So, <laughs> Steve? Yeah, I mean, uh, look, I, I don't I don't know whether in the absence of what they did that there wouldn't have been, um, you know, sort of more bank runs. You know, I, I suspect I suspect that there would have the, the problem, you know, that Silicon Valley had in terms of, you know, making really what were like, you know, trainee level errors in its uh, in its balance sheet management, like you know, like uh, you know, a, a summer intern wouldn't make those mistakes, uh, leaving that size of assets totally unhedged uh, at you know, sort of historically anomalously low interest rates when policy was you know, sort of full max easing, and there was a pandemic that we all knew one day would disappear. Um, you know, like a summer intern wouldn't make those mistakes. It's shockingly, shockingly stupid. And Silicon Valley Bank may have been unique in that type of stupidity, um, but there were other types of stupidity out, stupidity out there also. And confidence is a, you know, sort of confidence is a funny thing. It's difficult to difficult to win and easy to lose. And um, just because Silicon Valley Bank may have been unique in that particular type, you know, what's the, is it is it the, the Tolstoy line? All happy families are alike and unhappy families are, are alike, you know, unique, you know, in different ways. Uh, you know, other stupid bank managers out there were stupid in entirely different ways. And once you sort of set off the domino for one, you know, could there have been confidence shaken in other banks and runs in other banks? You know, I, I, look, I, I think it's likelier than not. I think obviously we, we won't know now, given the counterfactual. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it, I, I think things have changed a little bit. And a week ago, you know, I, I had very high confidence the economy was very strong. I had very high confidence the economy was, uh, you know, sort of uh, historically insensitive to rate hikes uh, for a variety of reasons. One of those reasons was that the yield curve, you know, yield curve inversion often causes economic weakness because banks borrow short and they lend long. And, uh, you know, so when the short term rate goes up really high, banks can't really make a profit if they're borrowing short and lending long because the yield curve is written. But because of the Fed's years of really stupid QE that they were doing uh, when it didn't need to be di- when it didn't need to be done, 
you know, the excess reserves and environment, abundant reserves environment that we were working with, um, you know, led banks not to face inverted yield curves because they were still offering deposit rates well below the Fed funds rate. You know, sort of Chase is still offering, what, like 10, 20 basis points. And a lot of these regional banks were offering above that, but certainly well below 5%. And so they weren't facing an inverted yield curve. So they still had profitable lending margins. And so credit growth hadn't really slowed down at all. Um, I think there's there's potentially been a regime a regime change there. Uh, deposits are, you know, confidence in these regional banks has been shaken, uh, you know, sort of fairly or unfairly, uh, you know, sort of, you know, all these businesses, you know, small businesses, real estate businesses, you know, delis, whatever, uh, they're all pulling their pulling their deposits from regional banks and, and, and moving them into money market funds, into T-bills, into accounts at, at the GSIBs, at the, the mega banks. Um, and that, that act of pulling out the deposits, uh, you know, even if you sort of keep the banks on life support because they have collateral to pledge to this new facility, uh, you know, it's it's not great for lending growth. It's not it's not great for credit growth, and it takes away, you know, that 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 mechanism I was talking about a moment ago, whereby the economy was relatively insensitive to rate hikes uh, a week ago. Uh, you know, it's it's starting to get. I, I, I think we're at risk of that getting reversed and, you know, we're at risk of, of shedding leverage. So, you know, I'm not what I would consider a bank expert. Uh, I'm not a bank specialist by any means, but I can tell you that when deposits, when deposits start flooding out, um, you know, those banks start losing profitability and they start focusing on, on, on trying to keep their balance sheet manage, manageable. And I think that for a lot of these banks that wind up having to use the facilities, right, we're really... I think we're turning them into Japanese style zombies. Um, so if you have this collateral that you can pledge, you know, sort of the treasuries and, and, and agency bonds that, that you can pledge to the Fed and borrow, as Joseph was describing before, um, but you're fundamentally, you know, sort of on a mark to mark basis insolvent uh, because interest rates have moved so much higher and that collateral is worth so much less if you had to sell it into the market to, to raise cash. Um, but you're kept alive on the liquidity. That's very much a, you know, a, a Japanese, you know, zombie bank. Japanese style zombie bank. Uh, those banks that start doing that are basically just waiting for the the collateral to get pulled. To, you know what's called pulled to par. So if you have a bond and the bond is worth less than a hundred cents in the dollar because interest rates have moved up, it's got eighty cents in the dollar. Every year the the every year the duration on that bond goes down. The bond gets closer to maturity. But when it gets when it matures, when you get redeemed. Uh, you get 100 cents in the dollar. So if you just wait it out, that bond gets pulled to par and the 80 cents converges to 100 cents over the course of 10 years or however long the length of the bond is. And so if those banks are basically going to be surviving on, on, on liquidity from the central bank, waiting for their assets to get pulled to par to become profitable again, they're basically stuck in delevering mode uh, not really growing, not really issuing any new any new credit, any new loans. Uh, that's that's very much a, a, a Japan thing. Now, that's not systemic the way it was in Japan for twenty years. It's 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 unique to the banks that are in this problem that Silicon Valley was in, in that access this credit, this facility because they need it to survive the liquidity firestorm that that they've been living through. Uh, but I definitely think there's a chance that 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 there's been uh, that there's a chance that there's been a, re a regime change in 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 the economy sensitivity to interest rates over the last one week. Joseph, do you agree? Are you in the camp? No, the recent panic in regional banking that won't reduce uh, the amount of bank lending. Um, or do you, are you in the camp of, yes, it will reduce bank lending, but thank God, because banks are lending too much. 
No, I agree with Steve. This seems to be like a shock to, to many of the banks, and they're going to have to be a lot more conservative going forward. Uh, for some context, for these first last two months, we, we do see bank lending slow noticeably compared to last year. So it's been happening. And, and now we, I guess we have some extra impetus for a bank to be extra, extra conservative. They, they probably are going to retrench a little bit more than they used to. Um, one thing, though, that I'm wondering is that, you know, right now the market is pricing in rate cuts again, or at least no more rate hikes. Does that actually push against um, what's happening here? I mean, mortgage rates going are going to go back down, let's say, from 7% to have a five handle again. Will that rekindle demand for loans such that at equilibrium, how does that affect credit growth? Um, well, I, I don't know. Do you guys have thoughts on that? I mean, it, it well might. I mean, you sort of saw in 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 the you know the November to January period that as soon as mortgage rates start t- started ticking down, you know, housing experienced this little surge, right? So you know, it it it, it well it well might. Uh, so the the ultimate question, you know, sort of these small small and regional banks are responsible for like a third of a third of credit nationally, right? So the question is, you know, sort of deposits flowing out of there and into you know JPM and other places, are they able to compensate for the lack of credit origination? that these small and regional banks are going to be doing uh, because as you point out you know household demand is probably gonna is probably you know you give a little bit of lower lower interest rates because households you know are still still plush with excess savings right, right. Um, which was another reason why the economy was less interest rate sensitive than it was is their credit demand going to move much higher now and I mean sort of everything was pointing in one direction last week now things are pointing in opposite directions there's a lot of you know there's a lot more cross currents now than there was you know a lot lot muddier picture than there was a, a week ago for sure absolutely even though the facility that the Fed made that the, the Fed announced yesterday should make banks immune to bank failure if they have the collateral, meaning the treasuries and the agencies that not all of them have because they may have CRE or, you know, or, or local loans that you can't actually pledge at that, at that window, at that facility. But even if that theoretically works to backstop all these banks that have this interest rate problem on their balance sheets, it still takes time. And I think that this is something else the market hasn't really hasn't really internalized. It takes time to set up that facility. The Fed has to go out and create an LLC, right? That is the, the facility is an LLC. The facility is a corporation, right? The facility is a legal entity. And that LLC has to be created. Operating docs have to be operating docs and members have to be created, have to, you know, agreements have to be created. And then, uh, and then legal contracts between that entity and the treasury have to be drawn up. And it doesn't just happen like it doesn't just happen overnight. It takes three or four days to set it up. And this was true when treasury was setting up those facilities in, in CARES. This was true when treasury was set, when when the Fed and Treasury were setting up those facilities in, in the GFC, um, it it takes a few days, and the speed of this bank run has just been phenomenal. In part because of you know sort of how much these Silicon Valley folks, you know, tech people are much more highly connected to each other than others are, or maybe they heard and they moved. Fast. I don't know whatever it was, right? It moved so fast. So if another bank is on the brink of death before. Um, before this facility is actually up and running and operational, it may not be able to be saved, even though the Fed, you know, with 48 48 hours more, the Fed would do so. Sounds like the Fed doesn't want banks to fail anymore. Maybe they'll make it illegal. (laughs) (laughs) You know, Jack, going forward, I think think the trend is we're going to socialize everything here. We're going to make sure that, you know, nothing, these banks don't fail, depositors don't go bankrupt. So um, I think the risk is, isn't that 
there's more failure in, in the future. To me, the greater risk is some sort of moral hazard that, that makes people make even worse decisions. And I, I think in the longer term, this makes our system less resilient and it's more inflationary. In a month from now, are people still talking about bank failures as something that is happening in the present, not the past? Or will it be people looking back, oh my God, thank God we're back to normal? I think I think people forget about this next month. So, so to me, I, I really look at this as being something that's more idiosyncratic. Um, when I look at what happened, I just see a badly managed regional bank that went bust. That's sad, but you know, uh, honestly, if it wasn't that many people who bank there had big, have big presence on social media, I, I don't really think we'd think so much about it. Uh, just for some context, you know, Silicon Valley Bank, two hundred and ten billion dollars. Sounds big, except that let's say the biggest bank in the U.S., J.P. Morgan, three point five trillion. Silicon Valley Bank is just not even tenth of that. If you, uh, the way the U.S. banking system works is that it's highly consolidated. So, I think about five banks account for half of the assets in the entire banking system, and everyone else, you really wouldn't notice them if they disappeared. There's you know hundreds of bank failures over the over over the years and and even more over the decades and it it happens. Most banks that fail are not systemically important, as Joseph was saying. You know, like most most banks that fail are are flash in the pan. Um, and so I do think that we will continue to have some banks fail uh, around the margin potentially potentially because, you know, they have, uh, you know, sort of bad assets they can't pledge at the Fed. Um, but it'll matter less and less. And the, the bigger dynamic is just people moving their deposits out of these, out of these you know, regional banks and into uh, bigger banks and into money market funds and treasury notes and stuff like that. And the implications for credit growth, uh, rather than the fact of, hey, this bank failed and there are sort of, you know, cascading failures throughout the banking system like Lehman. Mm. Yeah, that, that's, I think that's definitely something to think about. So, you know, I, I can definitely see that you, if you are a corporation or something like that, maybe you might feel more secure if you move money out of your regional bank to a like a JPM or something like that. That 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 could add for more consolidation in the banking sector. So that I think that can definitely happen. One of the ways that we can monitor this is going forward in real time is to see if the reverse repo facility participation ticks up because that could mean that some people are moving money out of their banks because they don't feel safe into a money market fund, which then will flow into the reverse repo facility. If you've been listening to Forward Guidance, you probably know that U.S. Treasury yields surged higher last year. Right now, you can get a 4.8% yield on your cash with Treasury bills. That's pretty good. It's even better than what you get with a traditional high-yield savings account. So owning U.S. Treasuries is great, but buying U.S. Treasuries is super complicated, or at least it was. You used to have to go to a bank or navigate a government website that looked like it was designed in the 90s. Thankfully, investing platform public.com has changed all that with the launch of Treasury accounts. Now you can move your cash into U.S. Treasuries right from your phone. And you can do it with the flexibility of a bank account. There are no minimum hold periods or settlement delays. In other words, you can access your cash whenever you want. And the best part is that because it's government-backed treasury bills, it's an incredibly safe place to park your cash. Public will even automatically reinvest your treasury bills at maturity, so you don't have to do anything to continue growing your yield. So to get that 4.8% on your cash, go to public.com forward slash forward guidance to move your cash into a treasury account today. Thank you, and let's get back to the episode. 
this consolidation is really, I think, um, critical to the conversation about moral hazard and whether or not this was a, you know, whether or not this bailout was a good thing. Um, I think, uh, look, there is going to be, you know, there are, there is going to be moral hazard. I mean, why bother, why bother responsibly managing your interest rate as a bank now, if the feds, if the feds got your back, you get all of the upside and none of the downside, uh, because the fed will just, you know, sort of make you whole and provide you liquidity until things go back until things go, go back your way again. So we really are removing incentives for, for, for banks to, to responsibly manage their balance sheets. And as far as the, you know, as far as secretary Yellen's claim that taxpayers are going to pay for this bailout that's total nonsense because the you know the bailout of the depositors is going to be is going to be paid for by higher FDIC fees uh, and higher FDIC insurance fees are going to be paid for by everyone so it is going to be paid for the taxpayers just not as a direct levy on your on your you know on your on your taxes when you file them uh, it's just going to be paid through higher costs in the financial system and what that means for the economy um, the one of the biggest issues I think uh, with with Sort of with moral hazard and 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 this and this bailout is the encouragement for corporations now also to not do any due diligence and not and not be responsible in their treasury management. There's all sorts of ways that any responsible corporate treasurer would have been able to lower uh, lower lower uh, his or her company's exposure to Silicon Valley, and they didn't because there was this you know rather incestuous VC ecosystem. You know, I, I've been I've read that 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 Silicon Valley was an LP in many VC funds, meaning they invested in the VC funds. The VCs owned startups, portfolio companies, and then those portfolio companies were instructed by the VCs to do their banking at Silicon Valley, right? And so it was basically moving dollars from the left pocket to the right pocket. Uh, and that, to me, is a, is a, is a, is a bailout form of moral hazard that, that, that does make me uncomfortable. The preferable solution, rather than doing a bailout rather than encouraging this type of moral hazard would have been just to sell Silicon Valley to a willing buyer, uh, you know, have the willing buyer make the depositors whole or, or almost entirely whole. Um, and that's a, that's a solution from the private sector. That's not, that's not a bailout. That's, that's a bank that wants Silicon Valley's assets. For example, maybe they want the, you know, maybe a, a major, a major, you know, wall street bank wants the relationships with startups because that feeds the pre IPO pipeline. Right. You know, like you can see any of these, you know, sort of top Wall Street banks paying a premium to have all these uh, banking, you know, ordinary boring banking features, you know, deposits, checking accounts uh, with tech startups, because then they've got their relationship with the tech startup. The tech startup does the IPO. They're first in line. Right. And so it's worth paying for that in order to increase the likelihood that you're making profit in the future. Right. The problem. And then, you know, this is a solution for the private sector. The government taxpayer doesn't have to bail out the depositors the way it just happened. The problem with that is it requires mergers. And this administration is deeply ideological opposed to mergers and concentration. And there are times when that's OK. But, you know, there should be you know no atheists in a foxhole and, and you know, and, and, and no sticking to. Uh, all you know, a, a silly principle like that when the banking system is seriously at risk. Um, and there were bids to buy Silicon Valley Bank over the weekend. Senator Haggerty con confirmed that to confirm that today. I personally heard through the pipeline of like three, uh, and the and they all fell apart. Government government wouldn't let it happen because they didn't they didn't like the bids uh, or they didn't like the buyer. Um, and as a result, there was no there was no private sector solution that that could have been had had a, another 
bank been able to buy them because the government wouldn't let them because of you know uh, you know be, because of the uh, you know ideological wing of the administration that's just opposed to bank concentration. I think that would have been a far superior outcome in terms of not having moral hazard while still making sure the depositors got the depositors got you know sort of a hundred cents of the dollar or, or or as close to it as possible. What do you think went on there? Because, you know, Washington Mutual went under the FDIC, took it over. Soon thereafter, JP Morgan buys it. And it's messy, but it all ends up okay. What is the the fear there uh, other than uh, corporate competition and, and consolidation, which I'm worried about, which is why I like defending regional banks. But uh, why is financial stability being sacrificed uh, for this, this political vision and who when you say you say the administration the government is it the biden administration it was this decision uh, made by the fdic officials were the fdi officials told to by people more powerful than Stephen? What, what do you think yeah i think i think it's the biden administration and you know it's it's the it's it's the whole it's the whole apparatus uh and i agree look i i also don't like consolidation i also think regional banks are are important and 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 valuable and you know like in normal times i'm a you know i'm a big defender of them and an opposer of of consolidation but you know there are times to there are times to put your foot down and this wasn't one and it seems like it seems like they were doing that um you know the 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 Fed and the Treasury basically had to be the ones approving a, approving a merger, and uh, you know it's just they don't want they don't want globally global systemically important banks uh, you know getting even more systemically important than they are. Um, but uh, you know so it, it, it's not you know it's one form of financial stability versus another financial stability risk. But you know sort of clearly you've got one risk at a time, uh, and you know it's. I, I think I think it was a really a really silly decision um, it, where that's going to have a lot of consequences that are borne by taxpayers and depositors uh, in the future. Um, and I, I think it's unfortunate that they un, unfortunate that they made that decision. But, um, you know, that's that's what they did. So a part of the bank was sold um, to the, the UK, UK bank for one dollar. What happens to the rest of the bank? Uh, is it being un- unwound? Its, its assets are being sold piecemeal. But what about its relationships with clients? Is SVB? I mean, that that definitely should have a value. And it would be a shame if you know, all those relationship managers who were making loans and deposits, if although they you know had to had to go to an entirely new job and not not even you know they have a, they work for a different company, but it's just that whole entity disappears. That would that would be a real shame. Exactly. Seeing Bloomberg right now, uh, Treasury and FDIC officials in a call. Uh, uh, briefing Republican senators uh, Monday said that there were offers plural to buy Silicon Valley uh, Bank this weekend, but there wasn't enough time. That's what they said. Hmm. Well, part of the reason why there wasn't enough time was because they were because they were so opposed to this for for so long that it took it took people a long time to get their bids together because they'd been told forever that they weren't allowed to, right? Yeah, you know, because of the because of the opposition to it, and and I think had the had the administration been a lot more proactive in saying, hey, you know, on Thursday, Friday, saying, hey, we would welcome we would welcome bids for this, uh, you know, sort of make it make it public. We're not going to oppose a merger now because it'll it'll you know it's appropriate. Uh, maybe there would have been enough time, but uh, you know, un- unfortunately, I mean, the assets are well understood. Right, you know, as we've been saying, these were these are treasuries and the assets are treasuries and agencies and and relationships. Right, there was no hard to value CRE. 
in this, mm -hmm. right? The way there would be with, you know, uh, First Republic or something. There's no hard to value loans to the local deli where you have to pull up, you know, you have to pull up the, bal the balance sheet of the local deli and, 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 and test the valuation of this was, this is easy. I just want to get this real straight for, for me and my audience that I, I see two aspects to the uh, regulatory, to the emergency of, of, of package of, of yesterday. One is FDIC making all deposits good, not just the insured deposits. And the second one is uh, the Fed's program uh, for the, the bank term funding program to lend against collateral. And that, that's what Joseph was talking about, uh, the, the, the uh, Badgett's, Badgett's rule and how it's a, uh, breaking <laughs> all three. Um, is there anything I'm missing? Because it seems one is the FDIC, the other is the Federal Reserve. Where does the Treasury come in, Stephen? So so if I could just add a, just one one clarification. So so the FDIC guaranteed uh, uninsured all insured deposits at the two banks that were taken into receivership. That means Silicon Valley and Signature. The FDIC has the authority to do that with a two thirds vote of the board of the federal of the of the Fed board and the FDIC board uh, if they deem those banks to be systemically uh, you know the, those deposits to be systemically important. Um, the hope is that everyone else deposits at every other bank in the country says, oh, they, they insure, you know, they cover all the deposits at that bank, so they'll do it to the other banks also, right? And so therefore, they're hoping they can't do that legally, right? Because of Dodd-Frank, it now requires an act of Congress to insure deposits at all banks. The only reason they're able to do that at those banks is because they were in receivership. Right, the FDIC with the board with the vote with the votes of the boards of the Fed, the Fed board, and the FDIC board can ensure all of the, can back all of the deposits at a bank that's already failed and already in receivership. Right, that doesn't require Congress to back the deposits of a bank that hasn't failed. Right, requires an act of Congress because of Dodd Frank. So as a result, it's they're sort of playing slate of hand, right? Where they're saying, hey, you know, these banks failed, and everyone's going to get a hundred cents in the dollar for the deposits. It's all money good. They're hoping that everyone extrapolates that, extrapolates from that, and says, oh, well, they do that to the other. They'll do that to the. To, if my bank fails, they'll do that to my bank also. So therefore, I don't have to worry about my deposits. I don't have to move them around. Right? They haven't actually insured the deposits at the entire banking system, and they cannot do so without an act of Congress. Um, so there is, you know, so there is a little bit, a little bit of a, they're just, you know, they're just hoping that people make that inference and, and, and gloss over the technicalities, which they probably, you know, they, they probably will to a large extent. Um, as far as what the, as far as the treasury, right, you know, what the, the, the role, the principal role of the treasury is, is, you know, first of all, coordinating, you know, sort of coordinating across these agencies and, and helping provide policy input and, and, and helping, you know, sort of decide that things are, things are systemic, but also um, it's uh, also, it's providing the capital for the uh, new um, bank term funding program that we've been talking about, the, the new Fed program that's going to provide uh, liquidity to banks. Um, the treasury has a pot of, I think it's about 60 billion off the top of my head, but I haven't looked in a while. Um, uh, dollars called the the Exchange Stabilization Fund, um, which technically is designed to be used for uh, you know exchange rate intervention if there's volatility in the dollar or something. Now, in practice, um, in practice, Treasury has often used that uh, for whatever whatever it wants to. Um, and it uses that as capital to provide to the Fed for emergency buying programs uh, in the financial crisis, in the COVID crisis, uh, and now. Um, and it sounds like $60 billion isn't a lot. Um, $60 billion is not a lot in the scope of the financial system that needs to be backstopped. Uh, when By the way, guys, that's our sovereign wealth fund. <laughs> yes. 
that's your sovereign wealth fund, sixty billion dollars. You know, China's got uh, what three trillion dollars of effects reserves, and we've got we've got a a, a whole whopping sixty billion dollars. Um, okay, at least and, we have the strategic petroleum reserve, right, guys? That's true. <laughs> we've got, got that too, and we got Yellowstone National Park and all this other land in Nevada. So, guys, don't worry about it. We we have a lot of money. That's true. No, look, I think I think I think doing having a much more active uh, exchange stabilization fund and and accumulating our own FX reserves would be uh, a really a really great thing to do. But that's for another day. Um, but Treasury gives gives some of that uh, sovereign wealth fund, as just described it, to the Fed, and the Fed takes that and uses it to run this program. And, and the Treasury gave them twenty five billion. Uh, twenty five doesn't sound like that much, but the Fed takes that and they 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 lever it. So then they, you know, in, in CARES, in the CARES Act during COVID, the Fed basically took these uh, these capital allocations from the Treasury for each of these different programs. I think the Treasury gave them 10, 10, 10 billion for each of these different programs. And then they lever at 30 to one or, or 30, I think they levered at 30 to one. I think in GFC, they made it levered it a little bit more than that. Um, and so if they do the same, I don't think I've seen an announcement of what the leverage they were doing. Uh, I didn't see it in the, in the press release yesterday of what the leverage they were doing for this new BT FP program. Um, but if they do 30 to one leverage on it, you know, that's $750 billion, right? So that's, that's, you know, that's, that's a big chunk of money. And then of course, you know, this is the, it's designed to cover capital losses. Um, but that's just, I think, you know, that's just a, a pleasantry. I mean, the Fed, you know, can operate with an infinitely negative capital, uh, capital count if it, if it wants to, um, theoretically. And Joseph, can you explain how this $25 billion that the Treasury is allocating towards the Federal Reserve, how does the Federal Reserve leverage that? And is it an equity investment? Is it what is it a liability of the, the Fed? How, do, how does that work? And then also in the joint statement, they said that the backs, the $25 billion is there just in case, but the Federal Reserve doesn't anticipate that it will need this $25 billion. What do yeah, you think? Actually, <clears throat> Actually, Stephen is described very well. So here's the, here's the problem the Fed has. The Fed doesn't want to take credit risk. They don't want to make a loan and then lose money. So whenever they make a loan to, let's see, the private sector and a, a non-bank sector, like let's say um, an emergency facility, like the corporate credit facility or something like that, mainstream lending facility or this facility, what they do is um, they usually, what they do is they create a separate legal entity and then um, ask Treasury to put down a little bit of equity into that legal facility and then lend money to that legal facility. Now, let's be more concrete. Let's so, say Treasury put down $25 billion into this facility. And then um, the Fed then can just lend, let's say, $100 billion to this facility. The facility has $125 billion. Now then it can go and make loans to uh, to other people and maybe to banks and so forth. And in case that there's a loss, the facility has a loss, what happens is that the treasury eats the loss. And so the Fed, who made a loan to the facility, not directly to the borrower itself, the Fed goes away unscathed, but the treasury takes a loss. So that's the mechanics behind it. Uh, here's the funny part. So treasury, let's say, puts down cash into, uh, into a facility, right? Where does treasury get the cash? It borrows the cash. Okay, so it borrows, let's say from an investor, 20, some money, puts it in the facility, and then uh, the Fed can then, you know, lend to the facility and lever up. But what does the facility do with the cash that Treasury gets it, gives it? It takes that cash and it buys Treasuries. <laughs> so it's kind of a circular loop. So, yeah. But, but just like how Stephen mentioned, there, there's really no hard and fast rules as to how, how high you can lever this. So you can easily go it to 20 times, 50 times, and so forth. It's, it's yeah. just kind of a... 
sleight of hand, really. Joseph's completely right. There's there's no credit risk on this because it's basically it's basically Treasury lending to the Fed to buy from Treasury because this facility is only good for Treasuries and agencies, right? And agencies again are implicitly backed by the Treasury, so they're generally considered to be you know as safe you know almost as safe as Treasuries. So it's Treasury Treasury lending to the Fed to lend to the Treasury, um, and there's no credit risk. So if you know, they are lending to a bank on this, and then somehow the bank still fails anyway, and Treasury is stuck with the collateral, then Treasury just sits there and waits five years, 10 years, whatever for it to, sorry, then the Fed just sits there and just waits for the collateral to, to uh, you know, to mature and, and pull to par and get totally repaid from the Treasury in the same way it's doing with its losses on, with the losses it's incurred on its QE portfolio on, on the SOMA from all the, you know, from buying all those, all those bonds at 1%, you know, those 10 year bonds at 1% uh, that are now worth, uh, you know, 80 cents or something. Yeah, it's, it's actually not that bad of a strategy. If you think back to the great financial crises, there's a lot of facilities that went and bought, uh, say, private label mortgage backed securities who looked like they were going to go, you know, disappear. But in, in truth, though, a lot of them actually came back just by holding them. So, you know, it, it's not necessarily that there's I mean, there's no credit risk for agencies MBS. And if you hold it, it it'll come back, usually speaking. Well, for these credit risk free assets, 100 percent, it will come back. So that, that's something worth learning. But one thing that I was wondering Stephen, so this is kind of more of a macro question. Do you think that impacts like demand for for treasuries and, and impacts rates? I mean, there there are two channels through which they could happen. On the one hand, uh, this facility takes away interest rate risk for a bank that holds treasuries. Does that encourage more buying? And on the second hand, if banks don't have to hedge their portfolio as much, does that have an impact on, uh, let's say, supply and demand of derivatives and so forth, um, swap spreads, so to speak. Uh, I, I, I don't know if you, I mean, this is something that just happened. So I've been trying to think, think through this and I'm not super sure, but it seems like it would have a broader impact. Yeah, I agree with you. I think there's absolutely going to be a broader impact. I think, uh, as you say, it's very hard to know right now what's going to happen. So things are very whippy right now, and it's very difficult to make a, to make really confident, um, Confident projections. Nevertheless, if you want me to speculate, here's my here's my speculation. Um, I think that the first in the sequencing of it, the first effect is that these regional banks are experiencing deposit outflows, and um, they will be uh, you know sort of experiencing pressure to deleverage. Um, that means that they will be you know in some in many cases bringing their you know they'll either be borrowing from the Fed at these you know sort of penalty rates, right? You know, they'll be borrowing from the Fed at like, you know, at Fed funds plus 10 plus 10 basis points when their assets are yielding 2%, right? And that's the zombie, that's the zombification that I was talking about earlier, where they're mm -hmm. kept alive on liquidity, but they're totally unprofitable, and they have no hope of profitability uh, on the horizon. And so they're just not creating any new credit, they're just hoping to outlast it um, for however long that takes. So, you know, so the, the first order, the, the first event, effect in the sequencing is that to the extent that they are not taking liquidity from the fed, they'll be forced to sell some of their, sell some of their holdings. Right. That I think is, uh, you know, is the, the, the provision of duration in, in, into the market. The second, now they might not do that because the facility, they might just decide to you know, just completely borrow. Uh, it's difficult, I think, at this point to say, you know, how strong those are. We're just going to have to see. 
um, and form reviews as time goes on. The second effect is that the value of collateral just went way up because you can now borrow, as Joseph was saying before, you can now borrow from the Fed. You know, a bank can now borrow from the Fed at way above the market value of its collateral, and so there's an incentive to take a lot of risk uh, because you don't have, you know, you don't have the downside at all. So there's going to be less. I think um, there's going to be less. Uh, you know, probably less hedging, right? More irresponsible management of 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 the um, uh, more irresponsible manager in the balance sheet as a result, because the Fed's got their back. Um, and also I think less of a, uh, less of a requirement to, to sell, to sell, to, you know, sort of as after you get past the initial burst that I was talking about before, and you look further down the line, especially for the big banks, um, you know, the big banks aren't going to feel, I think, as much pressure to be selling their inventory anymore, uh, shortening their duration anymore, because the Fed is their back. Right. So that to me, you know, there's now, you know, there's the, if you are a bank and you're managing your balance sheet, the downside from having too much duration just got massively reduced. Right. So any evaluation of the risks and rewards of whatever duration point you were at before just got favorable to having, to having more duration. Mm -hmm. Um, So I don't, you know, so I would imagine that short term their sale of duration into the market because banks are experienced, you know, regional banks are experienced in deposit outflow. And then over time, the over time that that starts to fade, and it starts to get dominated by uh, increased tolerance of duration risk uh, from everyone else who's still standing, um, because they know that basically the Fed, the Fed has their back. If I can break that down for the audience a little bit. So banks were funding their assets at zero to maybe 1.5% paying 70, 90 basis points on their deposits. Deposits were very slow to go up. Cost of funds were going to slow up, but they still were earning this. Um, As the deposits outflow, their cost of capital rapidly increased. And I'm betting that if they wanted to secure a loan from other banks, that would have been at a punitive rate. Uh, So the the rate of that the Fed is lending to uh, banks who secure their assets uh, Steve, you called it a punitive rate, and it is punitive relative to zero or relative to 90 basis points, but it is not punitive relative to what it would pay in a free market or relative to what uh, you know the old central banker Badgett uh, would recommend, which is what Joseph Wang, what Wang said, which is that uh, central banks should lend to solvent institutions against good collateral at high punitive interest rates. So it's, it's in, what's, what the Federal Reserve has done is, is in the middle, right? Absolutely, and and I meant punitive relative to what their assets are bear, are generating. Right. right. So if they 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 have these crap assets on their balance sheet that are yielding two or three percent, right? You know, it, you know, it's 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 punitive. It's punitive relative relative to relative to that. If they have to borrow from the Fed at five percent in order to support an asset side of the balance sheet that's yielding two percent, you know, two or three percent, uh, you know, they're in trouble because that's a net, you know, that's a net loss of three percent on their assets, right? Which then they just have to, you know just eat up every, you know, their equity every year until their assets get sufficiently pulled apart that they can, you know, sort of liquidate their, liquidate it. Right. So the bid for duration is perhaps higher than it would have been without this program because banks would have had to fund their assets at higher costs. But what is it relative to a week ago when they were paying 90 basis points? Because it's hardly a carry trade now to borrow from the Federal Reserve at, you know, SOFR plus 10 basis points. I don't know if it's exactly SOFR, but basically, you know, 4.7%. And then to, to buy a Ginny May yielding, you know, 4.5% or a, a 10-year treasury yielding, you know, 4%. Joseph? It's, it, 
It's one year Fed funds plus 10 basis points. Okay, okay, yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I think that there, there's no positive carry right now. Uh, one day, maybe the U curve spe- steepens. Maybe you could get positive carry from it, but that's not the case right now. Uh, you know, also the facility is um, expected to be just for one year. I those facilities have a, you know, <laughs> as they say, there's a, the closest thing to eternal life is a government program. Like the reverse. <laughs> The reverse repo facility, also a temporary facility. It's still here, and I think it's over 10 years old. So I, I don't know if that's going to if it's going to stay with us. But um, right now, the facility is estimated to be at least one year. So if you you really can't do a carry trade if you just borrow one year and buy something that's like you know 10, 20 years in, in duration. I really think it's the the big innovation is that you're really able to borrow at face value. Mm-hmm. Uh, rather than market value, because that puts, that basically makes uh, treasuries and agency MBS money like cash like. Right. Joseph, I've got a plumbing question. <laughs> you said earlier that the emergency package passed, you know, not passed, it's not democracy, <laughs> uh, from the FDIC and the, the Fed uh, is better for the big banks because they own all the securities than it is for the regional banks, which own loans. What do regional banks own that they can get cash for? Is it true that it, uh, the FHLB, Federal Home Loan Bureau, can give advances uh, for certain loans? And are those lim- loans limited to just residential mortgages or commercial real estate a- as well? Yeah. Uh, t- yeah how, how will that be sort of a savior for residential banks, perhaps? Not um, uh, regional banks. Yeah. So when I just che- I actually just checked this, so my knowledge is a little bit outdated. So it looks like the past few years, the smaller and medium-sized banks have, have bought a bit more agencies and treasuries than before, but relative to larger banks, it's it's not a big part of their portfolio. If you are a small bank, you're in the business of making loans. So that's what you do. Now, if you are a small bank and you need liquidity, what you usually do is you go to a federal home loan bank. A federal home loan bank is a government-sponsored bank whose whole goal is basically to support banks with cheap funding. Now in the, uh, so just like there are many, excuse me. So just like there are many federal reserve banks uh, for each region, each region also has your own federal home loan bank. You got one in San Francisco for the West Coast. You got one in Chicago for the Chicago area. You got one in New York for the New York area. Just like you have Federal Reserve Bank of New York, Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago, Federal Reserve Bank of San Fran. So every region has has their FHLB. And what happens is that if you are a bank, you, you take some mortgage loans to the Federal Reserve, uh, Federal Home Loan Bank, and you can get a collateralized loan at, it's basically uh, below market rates because the Federal Home Loan Banks are there to, they're government sponsored. They're there basically not so much to make money, although they do make money, um, but to support the public interest. And that's really what Silicon Valley Bank and actually First Republic Bank did as well. They, uh, they got, I'd say it's SVB got 15 billion, First Republic got 14 billion in uh, loans from the federal home loan banks. I think that First Republic actually told everyone that they could borrow a lot more, and I yeah. believe them. So the actually the credit policy of a federal home loan bank is they can borrow, it varies, but they can lend up to, let's say, 20% of the assets of a bank. So if you're looking at a bank that has $200 billion in assets, you can, in theory, lend $40 billion or more, depending on which home loan bank you're talking to. The big problem is that they also have other rules as well. And that is if you are 
uh, I guess, in some sense, maybe insolvent. So you have negative tangible equity. So your real unrealized losses are greater than your equity. Then the home loan bank doesn't want to lend to you. That was a big problem for SVB. It's going to be less of a problem for other people. Is that but, sorry, Joseph? Is that still a problem if the uh, securities that have collapsed in value, collapse is a dramatic word, are in the hold to maturity portfolio? Yes, it doesn't matter. So, okay. oh, actually, that's a, that's a good question. So, my sense, my understanding, and I I could be wrong about this, is that when it comes to tangible capital, you're looking at unrealized losses. So that will take away from your uh, tangible capital, and so it, it doesn't matter. For other capital ratios, you, you don't really look at the HTM unrealized losses. That, that's my understanding. I, I could be wrong on that point. Okay, so a lot of the liquidity that regional banks have actually probably won't come from the facilities yesterday. It will come from the FHLB. Do you know, is that limited to uh, residential or you know, if you have other loans, is it, is it only homes? It's it's mortgages. It's mortgages. So that's 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 why it's called home loan bank. <laughs> there you go. So not it's, office loan bank. Yeah. No, not office. Uh, you know, commercial read probably is okay as well. But um, corporate loan, I don't think you can do that. You'd have to go to the discount window. Got it. Well, I, uh, final topic I want to address is the huge rally in interest rates. Uh, we had a massive bull steepening. Short term interest rates just really really shot down. I think the most since the 1980s. Uh, 50 basis points uh, a fall in the uh, two-year treasury. And as a result, uh, folks are no longer, I say folks, you know, the interest rate market no longer forecasting a 50 basis point hike or even a 25 basis point hike. And uh, we had an article from uh, you know, our friend Nick Timoros saying that interest rate futures markets saw a greater than one in three chance that the Federal Reserve would hold rates steady at the meeting next week. So uh, is, the, is the interest rate market quote, telling us that they think the the Fed hiking cycle is over? Or is it a technical factor that, you know, the interest rate does not have, the interest rate market does not have a brain and it's just a huge rush to save collateral because there's a, a sort of a liquidity crisis that is in the process of being resolved? Joseph, you first, then Steve. So inflation is a real economy phenomenon and the Fed has a lot of control over the financial economy. The financial economy and the real economy are connected. Um, this is especially true for sectors that are really interest rate sensitive, like housing or like um, auto loans. When I look at what's driving real inflation in the world, you know, it's stuff that's not really so much financial. So we talk about, for example, very strong wages, and that has to do with a shortage of um, well, people wanting able to work. And um, so, you know, if you look at the real economy, it doesn't seem like that much has changed over the past few days. What's changed a lot is the financial economy. Like you noted, Jack, that there seems to be interest rate cuts being priced in. The 10-year has gone down a lot. And, you know, over the next few days, maybe mortgage rates will come down a lot. So what the financial markets are pricing in is you know, basically showing some monetary accommodation. Now, what I'm wondering right now is if the real economy is, you know, we still have these structural factors that are driving inflation and we basically lowered interest rates, does the housing market reignite again when mortgage rates go from seven to, let's say, a five handle? Um, do autos tick back up? I mean, so far, it, it doesn't seem like it doesn't. It seems like this story with the regional banks is a regional story. And 
honestly highly linked to the fallout in crypto and startups, which we already know we're not doing very well. But the U.S. is so much more than the Silicon Valley region. We have, you know, growth in factories. We have a lot of, let's say, new development in, um, let's say, the clean energy stuff. I mean, there's a lot of things going on throughout the country, and it's not clear to me that 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 uh, those people are affected, but those people do experience lower interest rates, and maybe that might make inflation come back up again. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Look, I mean, the two-year note has rallied 100 basis points in basically two sessions. I have never seen anything like that in my... uh, you know, in 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 my my career, um, it's it's just astonishing. And and like I was saying a week ago, I had a very clear economic outlook. You know, I was very certain that the Fed was going to have to hike rates at least to six percent, potentially well above that. Uh, I had a I had a, a column published in Barron's on Friday um, that when I you know when when I submitted it on on Wednesday of last week or you know Tuesday of last week, you know I had a list of reasons why the economy was so much less sensitive to interest rate hikes now than it was last time. One of the feature one of the one of the factors was this yield curves inverted yield curve stuff, deposit rates still being low that we discussed before. But there's a bunch of other ones. There's households still plush with lots of extra lots of excess savings that they've accumulated from all the all the stimulus programs. There's uh, the fact that after tax mortgage rate, because there's an incentive to itemize now because mortgage interest is so high and home prices are so high. So after tax real mortgage rates are actually not have not really actually gone up by that much versus pre pandemic. Uh, You know, there's all the fiscal stuff still coming online that Joseph just mentioned, you know, the infrastructure investment and jobs act spending is coming online in the next quarter. Uh, the chips act is, you know, you're building all these semiconductor facilities, uh, the so-called inflation reduction act, which in my opinion is actually highly inflationary has an incentivized building of all sorts of other, you know, facilities, everything from battery factories to uh, electrical electric vehicle plants. Um, there's all this stuff still coming online. And all of that, in my opinion, had made the economy much, much less sensitive to interest rates. Now, the key thing that's changed in the last since Friday, uh, in my mind, is, again, if the banking system is going from a stance of very healthy credit inflation to one in which it's got to keep jacking up deposit rates to hold on to deposits, and that disincentivizes credit creation, and therefore credit creation slows down dramatically. The creation of new credit slows down dramatically. They want to sell their old assets, so there's there's the simultaneously effect of no new, of much less new credit being created with trying to off offload the old assets. If this creates an environment in which credit growth basically falls off a cliff, uh, you know, I think that the I think that the economy just suddenly became a lot more sensitive to higher interest rates in the last week, right? We still have to figure out the extent of this. The extent of this effect is this effect going to be very pronounced, or is it actually not really enough to move the needle? Time will tell. If it's enough to move the needle, then yeah, absolutely, the Fed's hiking cycle is done, right? Because suddenly you go from high persistent inflation that seems immune to rate hikes to actually economic growth is going to dramatically decelerate, credit creation is going to dramatically decelerate. That's very disinflationary. And if we were in a world in which, you know, our star, the the quote neutral interest rate was actually way higher than normal to one in which it just became a lot closer to normal, then the stance of Fed policy just got a lot tighter in the last one week. Hmm. Right. So I, I don't know. And, and I'm trying to form a view on this now. It's it's a little bit I don't like to form views super, super fast. I, I like to come to a well-reasoned position that will a forecast that will last several months. Um, but there's definitely that risk now. Right. So 
just to sum up, I think a, a, not a, a week ago, you, Joseph, and you, Steve, were largely in agreement that the U.S. economy was less sensitive to interest rate increases than many in the market had thought, and that as a result, U.S. economy could remain stronger for a lot longer than it could thought, and it could even reaccelerate uh, in the early part of this year, as, as you both were right about. It sounds like after this banking panic, which we're still in the middle of, uh, Steve, you've uh, are in the process of reevaluating reevaluating your thesis because you think that this could uh, crimp lending growth because the cost of deposits will go up. And sounds like you're not so sure that there isn't another. Uh, you know, there, there could there could be a few more dominoes to fall. Joseph, sounds like you're more confident. You're you're kind of doubling down. You're saying, mm-hmm. no, this is just a temporary blip. Uh, uh, this this will not affect inflation, and it will just cause the the, the short term easing to be priced in, which will actually even reaccelerate inflation even more. Does that sound like a relatively accurate? Yeah, I, I want to I want to make a note. I think Steve makes a really good point that you know if you're a bank and you were making a lot of loans, and now you have a sense that maybe I could my depositors could run, you you're going to want to be a bit more conservative with making loans. So that could slow credit creation, and that could slow. The economy and inflation. So C's point is a really good one, and we're going to have to closely follow uh, the the Fed's data to see if credit growth is slowing or even going negative. So that's definitely a possibility. Um, one thing I, I would note, just just to add on top of that, so that's going to really depend upon some segments as well, uh, because if let's say you're a tech company, that's today tech companies did really well, right? You are not dependent upon the banks. You go out and you issue according to where treasuries are. If you're an Apple. Dude, it's, you, you go and you can buy, borrow just a little bit more than, a, than the U.S. government can borrow. For companies that have access to the capital markets that are not dependent upon banks, you know, they could, uh, this is basically a huge rate cut for them. And I think maybe that's part of the reason why they, they did well today. But yeah. for the real accounting for inflation, you, you got to watch the banking, bank credit creation. And uh, uh, is this going to be aired before CPI? Yes, this will be aired tonight. All right. You guys have any, do you, does CPI even matter? Is it still the most important data point of the month? It is, it is ridiculous that I haven't thought about the CPI at all today, given yeah. the, most days that's all oh, I'd be thinking about. Yeah, it's been downgraded, right? Yeah. A, if CPI comes in much stronger tomorrow than people expect, it, stuff's going to go on fire. You know, like it, 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 because the market will, con, will construe the Fed as, as having to hike into a, into a, into a developing banking crisis. Uh, there's very strong asymmetry downside to the stock market on a on on a on a strong CPI. The rates market reaction, I think, is much more difficult to predict. But if we get a strong CPI, you know, a, a, the market, the the stock market, I think, has 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 very asymmetric downside if that happens. Yeah, it was pretty remarkable that the stock market managed managed to rally today with with all the news. Um, well, we'll we'll leave it there, Steve. Thank you for being generous with with your time and your insights, and Joseph. Thank you so much for doing two interviews uh, for BlockWorks in one day. Uh, we, you and I did an interview with Jason, uh, co-founder of BlockWorks on the Empire podcast, which uh, will be on the BlockWorks Macro YouTube channel as well. So you were an, you were an all-star and, and we really appreciate it. Thank you both. Thanks, hey, Thanks guys, for having me. Guys, you got to follow Steven. He has really sharp insight. He's a very experienced macro guy. So definitely follow him. I've learned a lot following him. So definitely check him out on Twitter. Absolutely. You got to follow Steve on Twitter at Steve Moran. He's the uh, Chief Investment Officer of Amber Wave Partners. Got to follow Joseph on Twitter at FedGuy12. New fund, monetary macro. 
The, the blog is fedguide.com. There's a new article out today. Very exciting. Starts out with a good pun. And the book, of course, if you haven't read it already, what have you been doing? Central Banking 101. There we go. <laughs> I last. All right. Thank you, everyone, for uh, watching. Thanks, guys. Yes. Forward Guidance, the program you just enjoyed, hopefully, can be viewed on YouTube at Blockworks Macro or heard as a podcast on Apple Podcast and Spotify. Episodes are typically released on Apple and Spotify a few hours before they air on YouTube. Please leave a review on Apple Podcast if you feel so inclined. Check out today's sponsor, public.com at public.com slash forward guidance. That's public.com slash forward guidance. Also, you can get 10% off to Permissionless 2023 and BlockWorks Research using code GUIDANCE10. Thanks again, and be well.